You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So good to see you here. Sleep deprived as you may be. It's great, though, to have that extra hour at the end of the day. That's right. It is. It is. Wonderful, wonderful. But I never like it. (laughs) Everybody has an internal clock, and this disrupts our internal clocks. Anyway, I'm calling this morning a fresh start, and uh, I believe that... um, You know, there's been a lot said about 2020 and the numbers and the dates and 2020 vision and all that sort of stuff. Um, To me, that's too easy, prophetic stuff. Anybody, you know. So uh, it probably won't happen until next year, quite frankly. Probably 2021. We'll have 2021 vision next year, but no. Actually, um, I do believe from something the Lord uh, spoke to my wife, Donna, and something the Lord recently showed me that this really is a year when we can start over. We can have like a fresh beginning um, because God really is, and he's, he's said this in, this in the word and he's made provision. God is making everything new for all of us. And um, some things get in the way of that process though. One of them is shame. And I wanted to talk a little bit about shame today, and I'm going to do some of it from personal testimony. And um, I hope it's not too raw or revealing for you, but uh, if it is, tune me out and tune back in in a few minutes maybe. But anyway, what I want to do this morning is I want to use the parable of the sower as a context for what I'm sharing this morning. And I have diverted from 1 John because I believe this is like a current, thing the Lord wanted me to say today. Normally we stick with that, but I do believe the parable of the sower can give us context for what I'm sharing this morning. And in that parable, if you remember it, you can find it in, I think it's Matthew uh, 25. There's a couple of places, but in that parable, a wealthy man entrusted a bag of 5,000 gold coins to one servant, to another 2,000 gold coins, and to a third a thousand gold coins. And the Bible tells us he gave to each of them according to their ability to manage or their ability to increase and prosper. They had the ability to do that. And that was very generous for, um, I mean, can you imagine somebody just giving you $5,000 and say, hey, let's see what you can do with this. That's quite generous and liberal, isn't it? I mean, no interest, never talked about any of that. Just here, here's this money. I'm going to go away. Let's see what you can do. I'll give you 5000 I'll give you 2000 I'll give you 1000 What would you say? Thank you. Awesome. What an opportunity. Well, the first two servants doubled the wealthy man's money, but the third man dug a hole in the ground and buried his money. And the wealthy man commended the first two servants, but not the last one. And when the wealthy man questioned the third servant who had buried his gold, here's what the servant said. Look, sir, I know that you're a hard man to please. And you're a shrewd and ruthless businessman who grows rich on the backs of others. Can you hear how harsh that is? 
I was afraid of you, so I went and I hid your money and buried it in the ground, but here it is, take it, it's yours. Well, things didn't end too well for that guy. Now, in the end, the wealthy man did not try to correct the third servant's wrong view of him. Can you hear that? He never once said, no, I'm not that way. You misunderstood. But instead, he dealt with the third servant's view based on what the servant thought of that wealthy man. Now, the other two had a completely different view of that man, and that's the way their lives turned out. Now, this is important. Um, We can have similar experiences like those in this parable, and that's the point that Jesus told us. We can have similar experiences based on how we perceive God. Um, I don't believe that God is necessarily like the master in this story, but I believe the essence of the story is not to be afraid of God. I think the message of the story is your life won't work if you have an inaccurate view of who he is. Is he a shrewd businessman? Is he a taskmaster? Does he take advantage of people? Because that's exactly what this guy was saying. Here's the deal. We interpret God through the lenses we view him with. You better have on good glasses. It's so important that we have an accurate view of God and God is love. So all of that's sort of a a context. Remember that. The way we look at the Lord really affects how we actually interpret what happens to us in our lives and how things go. And we can be very wrong about our interpretations. Now, many of you may remember Ray Hollenbach. He's um, preached here a number of times, super guy. And uh, last week, I got a text from Ray that triggered a lot of the thinking, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about this morning. And here's what he sent. Hi, Robin. Hope you're well today. I've always benefited from your teaching, but I wanted you to know that these last three or four weeks on the Queen City Church's podcast, you have been an extra special blessing. I can't help that he said that. I'm just telling you what he wrote. And, and see, that plays right into how I view myself a lot of the times. It's hard for me to go, oh, of course. I know that was, that was really, you know. Your teaching has been excellent. That's Ray Hollenbach. And I wanted to share one story with you. When Stephen Roach spoke a few weeks ago, the only time your voice was on the podcast was right at the very end. You only spoke two sentences. But I heard the father say, quote, Robin's face is beautiful. So I want you to know that right from the Father that your face is beautiful. I heard the Lord as clearly in that moment as anything he has said to me in 2020. Well, I didn't really know how to take that, honestly. So I called Ray to talk to him about what the Lord told him. 
And in that conversation, he mentioned that he admired the fact that Donna and I had served the Lord and sacrificed for the gospel faithfully. That's exactly what he was saying. Um, so I began to wonder if, if that's why God smiled on me. If I wondered if that's the reason he told Ray to tell me Robin's face is beautiful because I've been faithful. Because, you know, maybe we've paid prices to do certain things that some other people hadn't do, hadn't done. But I, I didn't really know quite how to receive that whole thing about the Lord saying Robin's face is beautiful. Quite frankly, never considered my face beautiful. Ray didn't put these two things together, but I began to wonder if God thinks well of me because of things I've done for him. But then I began to wonder about the shame I have felt in the past of things I should have done but didn't do, of how at times I haven't liked my physical appearance, my inclination to be being overweight, my face, the way I look, my hair. I would like more hair. And there are other things about me that I found disappointing. I don't know. Please don't answer this, but you know many of you can relate to this. Please don't encourage me too much. I might get more graphic and that would be bad. But I've never thought my face was beautiful. Could God really think that? And why would he tell Ray to tell me? Well, at the same time, so this is sort of testimony time for me this morning. This is what's been going on in my life. At the same time, last week, once again, two nights in a row, I had this recurring dream. And I've talked to a number of you about it. We've talked through it. But in that dream... And man, it is so real. It is so real. In that dream, my father stops coming home at night after work. I'm young and I'm still living at the house. In actual fact, nothing like this ever happened. I grew up in a really, really stable, loving home life. I mean, I I rarely heard my parents argue. But in the dream, I don't know where he is or why he isn't coming home anymore. And my mom really isn't talking much about it. It's just sort of the elephant in the room, as they say. But it quickly becomes apparent that he's left us from, for someone else. He simply stopped coming home. We're left in the dark. And after each one of these dreams, I awaken with all the emotions of being abandoned and rejected and not loved and ashamed and worried about what will happen to us. In other words, to me, I'm, when I'm having that particular dream, and I've had it, I bet, six or seven times, I'm not watching that. I'm living it. I'm feeling all the emotion of it. It's affecting me. So I talked about, uh, I talked about the dream with some of my friends. I, talked, I spoke to a counselor friend of mine, too. And one consideration, and I think it's worth really investigating, is that the dream could be my mind telling me I haven't adequately dealt with some form of trauma or disturbance from the past related to my dad. That's, that's a real consideration. And if that's true, if that's true, and I think it probably is, it could be from the trauma of my father's early death. Dad was 62. When he died, I was, I was 31. Christopher, who runs the soundboard, and, and of course, John Mark, uh, John Mark was, I think, two years old. Christopher was, um, I think, two months old. That's how long ago that was because those guys were getting up there. 
Sorry. <laughs> but um, in thinking about this, I began to remember. I, I, now, I don't, I don't believe in digging into my past. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think that can be healthy. I think we can be too introspective. But I feel like, not just for my sake, but for all of our sakes, I really feel like the Lord wanted me to do that and talk about it to get some of these issues and ideas that could really help us out out uh, to examine. But I remember how I felt after he died. Um, it hurt me to realize he was gone and that when he died, we weren't on good terms. That really, that really affected me. I can remember sitting in the basement of my house in the dark, aching, literally aching from the inside and having chest pains. He died from a heart attack. I never even knew he had heart heart problems. So when he died, it was sudden and it was unexpected. And I started having these chest pains because I was having, I don't know, it's like my body, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the whole thing. I didn't know, and I didn't even know I didn't know how because it was, it was pretty shocking. Well, other painful things happened. The morning he died, this is how that this story played out. I got a phone call from my mom's closest friend that dad had just had a heart attack and he was on the way to the emergency room at Presbyterian Hospital. And I remember almost exactly what she said. Your dad's on the way to the hospital in an ambulance and it doesn't look good. That was a phone call. Well, I was still in bed when she called and I got up to rush to the hospital, but I stopped to take a shower before I left because my hair was messed up. Now, Here's the crazy thing. I always felt guilty and ashamed for taking that shower. It's, it's peculiar, the things that work on us. And dad passed away 38 years ago. And it was only this week I actually admitted that to myself. And it's Ray Hollenbach's fault. <laughs> He started all this. I was doing just fine in my little delusional state of happiness. So when I arrived at the hospital, the River Hills Community EMS vehicle was at the back door of the emergency room. The doors were open. The back door, everybody, like they jumped out and rushed in there but nobody was there. So when I went into the emergency room, it was empty too. There was a receptionist or someone in there and asked me my name. And when I told them, they directed me to a little small room where my mom was waiting. And when I walked into the room, my mom blurted out, Johnny's dead. What are we going to do? Well, that was my dad's name, John. So I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I hugged her and I said something to her I don't remember. But I was in a kind of shock myself. And an employee from the hospital came and they they handed me with um handed me a white I mean I can remember these details. It was a white plastic snap top bag with the name of the hospital on it. And inside the bag were my dad's clothes and his watch and his rings and his wallet. And I 
I don't know how far to go with some of this, honestly, but I could tell from looking in the bag that, I mean, just moments before my dad had those clothes on. And now he was gone. So I gave my, I, I didn't give my mom the clothes, but I handed her um, the watch, the rings, and the wallet. And uh, then afterwards, one of the EMS guys from the, the River Hills community, that's where they live down South Carolina, he came in. And he knew dad, and I could tell he was absolutely heartbroken because they knew each other. And he, he was telling my mom, we did everything we could to save him. And, uh, but I could tell he had taken it real hard himself living through that. I also remember this coming out of the hospital. I remember, um, looking in my rear view mirror and in the car behind me was my brother. And, um, I watched him really weep bitterly about dad's death as he drove away. He didn't know I saw that, but I mean, I'm sharing these details because of how personal this was, how much it affected me, and and some of the things, um, some of the things I felt about it, uh, really caused me a certain amount of shame. Um, and that could have been the only time I saw my brother that emotional. We we really weren't we weren't uh, we weren't very close but we've sort of gotten a lot closer here in these last years. But then my mom assigned me the task of buying my dad some new underwear for the funeral. Is that too personal? I don't know how far to go with some of this stuff, but unless you have gone to the Kmart on South Boulevard... And bought a pack of underwear because your mom wanted to be sure he was properly attired when they when they buried him. You can't you just don't know how that feels. You you appear to be doing something so common and mundane. And yet the it had such much more profound implications. It was though I can I can still see myself. I can still see what was going on. But at that time, it's 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 like it's as though time and eternity just intersected at the cash register when I was buying that for my dad. It was weird. Um, and another thing happened during the funeral. Uh, I like something the preacher said, and so I said Amen out loud. And someone uh, from my family elbowed me and told me to shut up. <laughs> was, that was, I mean, I was an embarrassment to him. I think a lot of times my faith has been, in a, how I practice my faith, I'm not going to blame, blame it on the Lord, but how I practice my faith has been an embarrassment to some of the people around me. And for the most part, I, I don't blame them. I'm practicing. I mean, doctors are practicing, right? 
we don't expect them to get it 100% right, but that's what they call it, a practice. So I'm just a practicing believer. I'm, I might be getting it wrong, but I'm giving it hell, as they say in the vernacular of the common man. I'm, I'm doing the best I know how to do. But they didn't want me to embarrass the family. Well, that hurt. And once again, once again, it's like this sense of shame just reached out for me. Well, I mentioned several weeks ago, uh, I talked a lot about some of the other painful experiences Donna and I have had. Um, I, I, it's, I think four weeks ago I talked about this community we're part of, but we've had several sort of traumatic episodes, not, not more than normal, but we've had our own. And I've wondered if I've actually processed some of them properly. But Don and I and the kids, we had our three boys in. Katie came later. We'd left this ministry that we'd been connected with for over 10 years. We'd helped establish this community on a 95-acre farm. The facility for the church was there. And we really did live in close community for eight years. It wasn't quite a commune, but it could you could see it from where we were. And... Uh, at the time we left, I felt like the whole thing was unraveling. I felt like it was becoming dysfunctional. I didn't feel like I wanted to trust my family to that situation anymore. And there was more to it than that. But let me leave it to say, I just couldn't continue to support it with the depth of commitment it took because we had, we had thrown everything into it, lock, stock, and keyhole. But when we left, I really did feel again, I felt like we were complete failures. And with a wife and three children and no money, we left to start all over. So those have been sort of the two major um, traumatic experiences I've had. Now, when I left, it was my decision to leave, but I felt wounded. I felt hurt from things not working out there. Because we really had, to the best of our ability, given everything we had for eight years. Um, and this goes back to my relationship with my dad. I had, um, in some ways, rejected my own father and replaced him in my heart with the leader of that ministry. Which, you know, that's a bad thing. But I'm just telling you, that that's where I was. That's the shape I was in. And I can remember after moving, I can remember being in the front yard of our house on Stonewood Drive cutting the grass and yearning in my heart that that pastor that I had sort of replaced my father with would come check on me, would care about me, um, but he never did. And at the end of the day, I had left him and that was that. So leaving that ministry left me with this sense of shame. One of the problems is we were proud. We were very vocal about our revelation of this life together and about Christian community and basically what we were doing, everybody should be doing, but since you weren't, we were better than you. We just weren't going to tell you that to your face. But it's just, it's just the way we felt. And so when we failed, it hurt. And there was that sense of shame. And see, it's like this, and I think there are a lot of us in the room in our faith, and there are a lot of people that should be in this room that haven't gotten through this particular thing. You, you go all in, 
and it doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. Or maybe the Lord just doesn't come like you want him to come. Maybe even the way we feel like he should have come. And you sort of, as the old expression, you just got egg on your face. You just look like a complete idiot. You've made all these bold proclamations. You've taken this big stand. You've given this testimony. You've told people about Jesus. And there you are. You're in worse shape than they are. It's humiliating. Well, the recurring dream about my dad has encouraged me to look at the past and question myself as to how thoroughly I process some of these things. Like I said, I don't believe in living this introspective life, but I think there's some things in here the Lord really wanted to show me. And the first thing was that whole thing about um, being ashamed that I took that shower. In other words, my image of myself was I should have bolted out of the floor post-haste, jumped in my car and rushed down. No, I was concerned about my hair. It's weird. But I know that shame's a real issue many people struggle with. And I know, too, that that sense of shame could keep me from receiving raised encouragement that the Lord really does say Robin's face is beautiful. Could God really feel that way about me? Could he feel that way about us? Could he really, could he really honestly feel that way? That when he looks at us, he sees us as objects of his immense affection. We look in the mirror. We don't like what we see. He looks at us and he says, you're beautiful. I'm going to take God's side. But not believing that can keep us from enjoying this abundant life because here again, um, what lens do we look at God through? See, he could be saying that about us, but our view of him, dear lady, that baby's not bothering me. I'd be happy for you to stay in here. <laughs> oh. Bless him, Lord. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. Nevertheless, <laughs> I wanted her to feel better about it, right? I'm feeling tender this morning. <laughs> oh, God. Help me. Okay, we're all right. So far, so good. Okay. Now, here's what we need to think about. Shame was not a part of the origin of the human race. Genesis 2.25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve's original factory condition was this, naked and unashamed. That's how the manufacturer made them, and that's how the gospel will restore us with a certain caveat. <laughs> naked in the sense of transparent, open, honest, free from our issues, but we need to keep our clothes on. <laughs> so when I'm talking about naked, what I'm talking about is before him, um, what does it says in Hebrews, with, with whom, before whose eyes, well, anyway, we're naked and open. So, so Adam and Eve begin with no sense of shame, but then Satan, the great tempter, the accuser, trapped and tricked these paradise dwellers. And paradise changed. They changed. Their personal internal sense of peace changed. Well, what happened? 
Well, Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. That was the lens they began to look at God through. And he wasn't holding out on them. He was holding out for them. He wasn't holding out. He was looking out. He knew love doesn't work without choice. And this is the only choice I'm giving you. Will you obey me and not eat from that tree? Well, Satan had made them a promise. They said, Satan said to Adam and to Eve or whoever, maybe it was Adam, Eve later, I don't know that they would be like God if they ate from that tree. But here's the problem. They were already like God. The truth was they were already like God. That's hard to imagine, but they were. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's this profound truth. To go after what you already have is to lose what you've been freely given. That's the grace revelation. Let me find it. To go after what you already have is to lose what you've already been freely given. See, when we got born again, we don't get this, but we have been given all things necessary for life and godliness. We have been raised. We have been seated. We're in heavenly places. God has poured out his love upon us. We have every single thing we need. We don't believe it. We don't believe he's that good. We don't really understand how it works. And so we begin to think, oh, maybe I need to do this thing and that thing to get that. And when you start down that road, you wind up under legalism and you get the exact opposite of what you're after. You lose what you've already freely received by trying to get it. That's got to help us if we can really see that. It's profound truth. So Adam and Eve disobeyed God, pursued what they already had. They died or their spirit died. That's the thing about being born again. The end result was they were ashamed. How did they act? They tried to cover up. And then they hid themselves from God. That's what shame does. When we try to manage our own lives, when we try to manage our own shame, we try to cover ourselves up with God knows what. It's not natural clothing. It's actions, it's attitudes, it's hobbies, it's pursuits. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex. It could be any myriad, any number of things. And what we're really doing is we're trying to cover our sense of having been exposed and then we hide. But they lost paradise because the devil told them, here's what paradise looks like. Naked and ashamed. This is what shame does. One of the keys to overcoming shame is in being able to expose yourself to God. Really into certain others. I mean, nobody wants 
church to be like everybody comes up here and tells all the terrible things. I mean, you've heard enough from me already, but could you imagine all of us doing this? It'd be pretty. But there's something about looking at it and not bemoaning it, but maybe owning it, maybe realizing, okay, this is who I am. This is what I did. Now, that's not who, who God's making me, but this is part of my part of my journey. And so I ask this question, and I'm going to explain a little bit. Do you practice what I call intentional communication with God? And to me, there's a different kind of prayer that I think we don't realize we can have. But have you ever intentionally told the Lord everything there is to know about you? I've thought about this over the years, and this is this is a great idea. What if God only know you, knew you to the degree that you have intentionally revealed yourself to him? One reason we don't tell the Lord who we are, well, there are a couple of reasons. One is maybe we're ashamed of who we are, but another reason is we think since he knows everything, what's the point, Right? Oh, he knows all that. Well, what if he's chosen not to know it? What if he's chosen to want to know you by you actually communicating to him who you are? This is who I am. This is where I've come from. Um, what do you want the Lord to know about you? Don't assume. There's different kinds of knowledge. Do you understand what I'm talking about? There's factual knowledge. But then there's intimate knowledge, that kind of knowing that can be expressed through the intimacy of marriage. It's it's deeper. It's profound. Well, I think the Lord is saying to us, well, we found it in the Song of Solomon. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 14, Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff. Here's what the Lord's saying. Let me see what your face Let me hear your voice. Why? For your voice is sweet and your face is beautiful. Your face is lovely, it says. I put beautiful in there for effect here this morning. But you need to talk to the Lord as though he doesn't know anything about you. And you might wonder, well, why would you do that? Well, there are a lot of reasons I've learned. But this is one way you develop a deep relationship with the Lord. You're intentional about it. You tell him who you are. Here's what I know will happen to you if you really do this. He will begin to communicate with you in a new, more profound way. He will. People that I have talked to about this who have practiced it have come back and said the very same thing to me I'm saying to you. He will begin to speak to you and help you with things he never specifically helped you with based on the things you have disclosed to him about who you are. I've heard that over and over. He'll explain your life to you in a new way. He'll speak to you about things he's never spoken to you about. He'll reveal himself to you in new ways, brand new ways at new levels, which brings me back to shame. When I was doing this, I began to tell the Lord my life story. I mean, I went name, rank, and serial number. I took this to heart. I said, my name is Robert Agnew McMillan. My mother called me Robin because there were too many Bobs and Roberts in the family, and I never liked that name. 
I felt like it was a girl's name. Everybody else I knew who had that name was a girl. The girl across the street had my name. Or did I have hers? I don't know. But I didn't. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? But I'm just, this is me. This is my life. This is what I've gone through. This is how I felt. I didn't even like my name. Okay. I told him every single episode I could about myself. And this, I didn't do this in 15 minutes. I did this over weeks. I remember things and I would just, I was just, and one thing I did, I always talked to him out loud, which is strange. You need to be off somewhere. <laughs> but it took time and I still do it. Even as I talk about it, I'm reminded how important this is because it's not normal. It's not natural. That's why God gives us the Bible. There's stuff we just don't get. We need to get. The foolishness of preaching, Paul said, is what God chose to save people. To present ideas and concepts maybe isn't the normal way of looking at life or looking at things. So I told the Lord some things about me that, that uh, caused me shame. And then I said to the, him to this, now listen, this is all my subjective relationship. You could question every bit of it, I know, but I'm just telling you, this is to the best of my ability after all these years. I said, Lord, you never felt shame because you've never done anything to feel or be ashamed about. And here's what he said to me. He said, that's not true. And I'm thinking, well, you were perfect. What did you have to be ashamed of? He said, I felt ashamed on the cross. Then I felt like he said this. I needed to feel ashamed so that I would know how someone felt who felt that way. Think about that. That was part of his experience. It's not like he can't identify with us because he was perfect. Because he had something happen to him through that mysterious episode on the cross that made him conscious of how I would feel in some ways virtually any person in any situation, no matter how dreadful or drastic it could be. He could identify with them. He doesn't come give us opinions. He came and suffered with us. It's what he did. You know, the whole idea of Jesus suffering is so profound. Then he said, I did something about shame so that no one would ever need to feel that way again if they could really understand it. Well, I'd been saved over 40 years when the Lord showed me that. So I said to him, why did you never show me this before? He said, you never talked to me about it. And that's just the fact. He had never once mentioned any of this about shame ever before until I began to talk to him about it. Then he began to talk to me about it because it's a relationship. I've got no quick fixes for anybody in this room at any level. I don't know all the answers. I really don't. I wish I did. I'd like to think I do, but I don't. But I do know this. Jesus will relate to us. He will help us. He, he says your voice is lovely. Your face is beautiful. Let me see your face. 
let me hear your voice. Well, he says, well, come look at me. That's not what he's asking. He can look at your face anytime he wants to. But it's like you need to take who you are with the lens of this God who really cares about you. Through, through that lens, you see he thinks your voice is lovely. He wants to hear it. He misses it when he doesn't hear it. He wants to see your face. He wants you to come boldly before that throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace in the time of need. Take your face with you to the throne. And then the Bible confirms this thing about Jesus' shame. I think the verse ought to be up if I've got it. We got Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do what? Lay aside every weight and what? The sin which so easily ensnares us. And let's do this. Let's run this race with endurance that has been set before us. How? Not by looking at yourself, not even by analyzing your condition like I am this morning, but I'm analyzing to get past it. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the one who began this life in us, and the finisher, the one who will help us finish this thing that he started. And it says, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross and did what? Despised the shame. And that word meant he thought little of it. He was naked. He was broken. He was bleeding. He was humiliated. His mother was watching. Rome was watching. His enemies were watching. He was completely made barren and shamed. And yet when he looked at that, he said, I don't count that as much. When he despised it, he didn't mean despise like you hate someone. It means you belittle it. It means you take what that thing is and you put it in its place. It doesn't tell you who you are. You tell it what to do. So he said, we should cast off, we should lay aside Every weight. Weight comes from a word that means ache. It can mean wound. Those aches, those wounds. Here's something the Bible says we can do. Why don't you cast them off? Why don't you lay them aside? Every, how many weights should we lay aside? Every weight, every ache, every wound. Despise that shame and look at him. He wants to see our face both author and finisher, who for joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, thinking little of the shame, thinking slightly of the shame. Jesus thought little of shame. I think we can too. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For God made, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then 2 Peter 2.24, who himself bore, somebody just say bore, bore, bore our sins 
in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. So there's something there where I don't understand how this worked, but there's something that happened in the cross where we gained access to a completely new species of being from the one we started this life out as. We were born again. Our spirits were reborn. And then I think about this when I think about how do we deal with shame? Romans 2, 4. It says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? There's that word again. Do you think too little of the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing? Say that with me, not knowing. We need to know. Not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance. We have thought too little of the riches of his goodness, of his forbearance, of his long-suffering, not knowing that beholding his goodness leads us into this repentant transformation of our lives. When we know his goodness, when we really know in our experience, we will live in a place of continual transformation and growth. We'll make progress. We will enter into this whole idea of a brand new year, a brand new experience. Well, as I've been processing all this myself, when I have been preaching to me, what I've been preaching to you, I had another dream. And then this dream, the Lord gave me a brand new Burgundy Genesis automobile, a brand new car. What kind of car? A Genesis, which means the new beginning. And I believe the Lord's offering all of us something new, a new beginning. Okay, it's March. You know, when the Lord initiated the Passover, and this was the word Donna got, when the Lord initiated the Passover, he said, this will be the beginning of months for you. God can come into our life at any point, And because of the real Passover, he can look at us, your life's a wreck, and he can say, hey, guess what? This is going to be the beginning of the months for you. Oh, everything new, new start. I'm about halfway through. <laughs> I really have to read this part, though. Genesis also speaks of a new beginning. Personal cars, from a prophetic standpoint, can speak of moving forward, making progress in your personal life or in your corporate life, your family life, business life, ministry life. I feel like the Lord's given me a new vehicle of life, of expression, of a way of living as it relates to dealing with being loved, but being loved from a broken state instead of from a bright and shining state. I'm, I'm not trying to focus on any negative, but I believe that God looks at us in whatever state we're in. And he says to me, Robin's face is beautiful. See, that to me is the true God. But if I only hear Robin's face is beautiful when I'm devout and successful or I've paid a price for something by being faithful, then that's who God becomes to me. And that's a trap. That's a lifestyle I develop where I'm always frustrated. 
that he only loves me or you when we succeed. He only loves us when we're faithful. Or I'm beautiful to the Lord because I gave my life to serve him and I've been really successful at it. If that's what we think, if that's the lens we see God through, here's what we're really saying. I've got to win God's smile. I've got to catch his attention. I've got to sing for my supper. I've got to dance for his love. Come on, do you hear what I'm saying? That is ingrained in most of us. It really is. When you get to the bottom of it, when you, when you finally are willing to look at who you are from a negative perspective, can you actually say, God really loves me? He says, my face is beautiful. He says, my voice is lovely. Win his smile, catch his attention, sing for your supper, dance for your love, earnest approval of those the lenses you look through when you see God. Because if you do, you're going to experience some way, shape, or form what that third servant experienced because his attitude toward his master was so wrong. His view was so wrong, his life went wrong. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world, the one that was filled with the shamed, mark-missing children, rebellious humanity, that he gave his only begotten son. Romans eight thirty-two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Some are ashamed for believing in God when things didn't work out, when God didn't come through for you. I get that. Maybe you made bold proclamations of faith about something that didn't happen. You were disappointed. You were ashamed. You were hurt. You're humiliated. Well, listen, here's what we have to settle. Jesus is enough. But I don't mean that just in some kind of um, sterile way. I mean, he can set the stage for healing us. He can arrange that circumstance. He can speak that word. He could change that heart. He could break that heartache. He can make this connection. He can connect you with the people you need, or he could design the divine coincidence or answer your heart cry, cry or mend your wounded soul or touch you deeply or remedy your situation until ultimately you are satisfied. When I say he's enough, I don't mean that in some religious stupid way. I mean, he can somehow invade your life the way your life needs to be invaded to get you where you need to go or give you that opportunity or bring that healing or that insight or that change of mind or whatever it is, he is capable of doing that because it's the goodness of God that brings us to a point where we really will just turn. I don't understand all the mysteries, but trusting God is the only way to go. What lens do you view God through? It matters. It really, really matters.
Well, I had some other things I could say, but um, I think I would just, I'd just like to pray. If the Lord's touched you this morning, and why don't you just close your eyes and don't look around? Let's say you've had an issue or something you've been ashamed of, or and you really do want to look to Jesus and make little of that shame. Why don't you just stand up and I want to pray that for us. Just respond. Lord, we're here today and we're asking that you would break through to us Lord, that we would see you as you are. Lord, that you really do say to us, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is lovely and your face is beautiful. Father, we just... um, uh, This is a strange thing, but I was thinking about the uh, River Jordan, when they were going into their promised land, that's right, when they were going into this new beginning, what happened was, see, the Jordan River speaks of death. It flows right into the Dead Sea. When they baptized people into his death and resurrection, they would do it at the Jordan River. So the Jordan speaks of death. But when the priests were going to cross with Joshua into the promised land, it says when they stepped into the Jordan River, that river stopped. And it, death stopped. Can you hear that? Death, it says, backed up all the way to Adam. And there's a picture there. We're crossing into our promised land. And we're saying, Lord is stopping the death that has plagued us. And he is capable of rolling us all the way back to living like Adam lived. Naked and not ashamed. He cut off death in that regard. The Dead Sea dried up. No more Dead Sea. So, Lord, here we are. We're crossing over this morning into a new place, Lord. And we're thanking you for everything you've done. Lord, we don't even understand the gospel. There are parts of it we just don't understand. But, Lord, we love you. Here we are. Here we stand. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.